uh, in Hebrews 11, this chapter of the Bible introduces us to the heroes of the faith. And we constantly read in this chapter that by faith, believers of past ages face difficult situations and they were victorious. The question is, why were they victorious? Because those believers had faith in the word of God. And that encouraged them to persevere. However, my question is, what encourages you? What motivates you to get up every day to live the Christian life? What is your motivation to run this Christian race? What encourages you to persevere in faith? And that which should encourage you is the same thing, the same reality that encouraged the hearers of the faith. And that is persevering faith in the word of God. Persevering faith in the promises of God. And that is the name of our sermon. Persevering faith. And to look at this persevering faith... We're going to be studying 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And here, in 2 Corinthians 4, verses 13 to 18, you will learn two future promises of the Christian life that encourage you to persevere in faith. That's 2 Corinthians 4. Verses 13 to 18. To future promises of the Christian life that encourage you to persevere in faith. And those promises are, in first place, verses 13 to 15. We want to be looking at future resurrection. Future resurrection. And the second promise is in verses 16 to 18. And that is... Future glory. Future glory is that second promise. So, let me just give you a little bit of context to this letter before we start in chapter 4. Just real quick, in chapter uh, 1, in chapter 1 of Second Corinthians, uh, Paul is talking about the God of comfort. In fact, if you read chapter 1, you can look at the times that Paul talks about God as comforter of comfort. You will see that that word appears many times. In chapter 2, Paul is encouraging the church to reaffirm their love to someone that was disciplined at the church. Then in chapter 3, Paul is talking about, he's making a contrast between the old covenant and the new covenant. And the point of Paul in chapter 3 is that the new covenant is more glorious than the old covenant. And then in chapter 4, which is a chapter for tonight, Paul is uh, defending his ministry. He's being accused. He's being attacked by the Corinthians. And he is defending his ministry, saying that the ministry is a grace of God. He is in the ministry because the Lord has been merciful towards him. So with this in mind, let's look at the first future promise that's encouraged you to persevere. And let's look at future resurrection. I'm going to be reading for the NASB. 
So verse 13 reads like this. But having the same spirit of faith, according to what is written, I believe, therefore I spoke. We also believe, therefore we also speak. So notice that in verse 13, Paul talks about spirit of faith. What does it mean? Well, this is not a reference to the Holy Spirit. Spirit of faith here refers to an attitude of faith. Paul had an attitude of faith towards the word of God. How do we know that? Because he tells us, look at verse 13. Having the same spirit of faith according to what is written. And we know Paul is talking about the word of God because he quotes the scripture. Look at that. In my Bible, is in, in, uh, it says, I believe, therefore I spoke. And that is a quote from Psalm 116, verse 10. So Paul is quoting the scripture in here. And in the Psalm 116, the psalmist speaks of a situation in which the course of death encompassed him. But he called upon the Lord... And the Lord rescued him. So Paul quotes this psalm because he is identifying himself with the same situation of the psalmist. Both men were afflicted. Both men were persecuted. Both men were persecuted. But they trusted, the psalmist and Paul trusted that Yahweh will deliver them from death. These death situations, death situations that they faced were not an obstacle or wouldn't stop them to keep proclaiming the faith that they had. On the contrary, those situations, persecution, affliction, tribulation, work as gasoline that ignited their passion to speak the word of God. I like the way Pastor MacArthur explains this verse. He says that... Paul's persevering faith compelled him to preach. It was impossible for him to believe the gospel truth, but not long to proclaim it. And I love the way he puts it here at the end. He says, those who lack conviction in their preaching do so because they lack conviction in their hearts. And this was not Paul's case. He had conviction in his heart. He believed the word of God. And that motivated him to speak his word and to persevere in faith. The psalmist had faith in the word of God. Therefore, he spoke. Paul had faith in the word of God. Therefore, he spoke. Because faith in God's truth produces conviction to speak about God. I mean, Romans 10 tells us that faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. So when we hear the word of God, our faith increases. And as our faith increases, so does our conviction to speak the word of God to others. Paul confirms that at the end of verse 13. Look at that again. He says, therefore, I spoke. And he says, we also believe, therefore, we also speak. And here we can ask, what is the promise that Paul has in mind here? And, and the idea he has in mind is the resurrection. 
Paul has faith that God will deliver him from death. And that encouraged him to persevere. How can God deliver him from death? Paul expands on that idea in the next verse. Talking about the promise of future resurrection. Look at verse 14. Paul writes, Knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and will present us with you. So look the connection between verse 13 and 14. He says in 13, We believe, we speak, knowing. And knowing what? Here he comes that promise of future resurrection. He says in verse 14, Knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus. And that word raise or Resurrection, that word can be understood as well as resurrection. Paul uses that word four times in Second Corinthians. So it's not a lot of time that Paul uses that word in this letter. But in First Corinthians 15, Paul uses that word 19 times. In fact, let's go to First Corinthians 15. Just a couple pages back. This chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, 15, talks about the resurrection or race. And before we look a couple verses in here, let me give you a definition of resurrection. The theological dictionary says that the resurrection of the dead refers to the promise based on the bodily resurrection of Christ that all believers one day will join Christ in the resurrection. I mean, we just sung about it. What is our hope in life and death? Is Christ. Our hope is built in that and nothing less. That one day we will be resurrected as He was. So in 1 Corinthians 15, look at verses 12 and 14. 12 to 14. Now, if Christ is preached that He has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? What is the issue here? Well, a lot of people in the church at Corinth were denying the resurrection. They didn't believe in the resurrection. That's why Paul dedicates chapter 15 just to talk about the resurrection. That's why he uses that word 19 times. So what's the problem with denying the resurrection? Look at verse 13. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain. Your faith also is vain. So what's the implication of denying the resurrection? Paul tells us that in verses 16. Look at verse 16 and 17. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised... Your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. So what is the implication of denying the resurrection? Well, the implication of that is, if you say there's no such a thing as resurrection, then Christ during resurrect. And if that is true, then our faith is vain. Our faith is worthless. We are still in our sins. There's no gospel. There's no salvation. And that's, that's the end. But Paul tells us in verse 20 
that Christ's resurrection is the guarantee that every believer will have a future resurrection. Look at verse 20. But now, and this is on the contrary, but now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruit of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. Who is this man that Paul is talking about? Look at verse 22. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. So Paul in verse 20 again gives us that guarantee that because Christ resurrected, all believers one day will be resurrected with Him as well. So going back to 2 Corinthians 4. That's what Paul knows and believes. He believes in the promise of the future resurrection and that produces in him persevering faith to proclaim the resurrected Christ. How do we know he had that trust? How do we know Paul trusted in the resurrection? Well, 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Look with me. Chapter 1 of 2 Corinthians. Look at verses 8 to 10. For we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, we have the sentence of death within ourselves, so that we will not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. So Paul is talking a situation he faced in Asia and the situation was so dangerous that they thought they were going to die. But Paul explained that that was good so that their trust is not in themselves, but in God, as he said in the, in the end of verse 9, but in God who raises the dead. And look at verse 10. He says, who deliver us from so great a peril of death and will deliver us. He on whom we have set our hope. And here's the reality. Yes, the Lord spared Paul of that dangerous situation, but Paul eventually died. So with the rest of the disciples and the apostles and believers of past ages. But what Paul is saying is here is the Lord delivered us from that situation but He will deliver us from the last situation, which is death. And that is true. Look, we all potentially will experience death. But death doesn't have the last word. And I like the way the Puritan Thomas Watson puts it. He says, The grave is your long home, but not your last home. Though death strip you of your beauty, Yet at the resurrection, you shall have it restored again. So death doesn't have the last word. And though we believe in the future resurrection, that doesn't mean that we will escape death. Well, we will if the Lord comes for us and takes us in the rapture. But otherwise, we will face death. But we have this future resurrection that one day we will wake up to His likeness. We will be like Him. 
when we see Him just as He is. So this promise of future resurrection produces persevering faith that motivates us to speak the gospel. And look at verse 15, going back to 2 Corinthians 4. Verse 15, Paul writes, For all things are for your sakes, so that the grace which is spreading to more and more people may cause the giving of thanks to abound or to increase to the glory of God. So note that first phrase, all things are for your sakes. And this just shows us that Paul had a close relationship with the believers at Corinth. He was their spiritual father. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 4, 15, Paul writes, In Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. And as a good spiritual father, Paul was willing to receive attacks for their good, as he writes in this verse, for their sake. Paul presents a similar idea here in verse 12. Look at verse 12. He says, So death works in us, but life in you. And going back to 2 Corinthians 1, Paul presents this same idea. 2 Corinthians 1, verse 6. Paul writes here, But if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. So it's this idea that he is suffering, but it is for their good. It is for their comfort and their salvation. The next sentence in verse 15, going back to Second Corinthians 4. This next sentence in verse 15 tells us why Paul endured those sufferings. He says, so that... The grace which is spreading to more and more people. And this idea of grace spreading or of grace being extended to more people is a frequent theme in Paul's letters. You probably remember what is Paul's, uh, his most common greeting in the letters. Grace to you. Even in 2 Corinthians 1, he uses that greeting. It was, it was his signature. Grace to you. And the idea of that greeting is just the Lord extending, increasing His grace to others. God multiplies His grace when more people receive it. That is the idea of that greeting. What happened when more and more people receive the grace of God? Paul tells us that in verse 15. So when more, more people receive the grace of God, he said that caused the giving of thanks to increase or to abound to the glory of God. That is to say that when more people receive the grace of God, God is praised and glorified. And here's the idea. <clears throat> more and more grace, more and more people, more and more thanksgiving, more and more Praise. And just think about it. Sinners are saved by grace alone. And when the Lord extends His grace to a sinner, that person is a child of God. And that person is so thankful to the Lord that that person, that sinner, who used to be an enemy of God, now is a child of God, now praises God. 
And just think about it. This person now goes and preaches the gospel to someone else. And then the Lord extends His grace to that other unbeliever. So then you don't have just one singing, but two child, children of God worshiping the Lord. Why? Because more and more grace, more and more people, more and more praise the Lord will receive. This is just such an encouraging verse when we think about our family members or friends or co-workers, neighbors that are unbelievers. This should be like our prayer and our motivation. Lord, I pray you extend your grace to these unbelievers so that this person can worship you. So that this person can give thanks to you. That is the point of this verse. In summary, these three verses teach us that Paul believed in the promise of future resurrection. Which motivated him to speak of his faith knowing that it will multiply the glory that God will receive. My question is, is that your desire? Do you want to see more people worshiping, praising, glorifying God? Again, this should motivate us to persevere in our faith, proclaiming the gospel. We've been learning how in Revelation chapter 4 and 5, there is the heavenly choir. And we have the four living creatures. And then we have with 24 elders. And then we have angels. And then we have all creation worshiping God. And my prayer, my desire is to see my family, my neighbors, my co-workers, the friends I know with me in that day worshiping the Lord forever. And there is only one way for them to do it through the grace of God. Is the, if God extends His grace to those unbelievers. Alright, this is the promise of future resurrection that we see in verses 13 to 15. Let's look at the second promise, and that is future glory. And we see that in verses 16 to 18. Look at verse 16. Therefore, we do not lose heart. But though our inner man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. And that phrase that we see in the, in chapter, in verse 16, we do not lose heart, it is the second time that Paul uses that phrase in this letter. The first time is in verse 1. Look at, look at verse 1. Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we receive mercy, we do not lose heart. It is exactly the same phrase. That phrase can also be translated as, we don't give up. Or, we faint not. In other words, Paul is saying, I don't quit. I'm not a quitter. That's what Paul is saying using that phrase. And Paul in this context, is talking about the decaying of his physical body. He's talking about the deterioration of his physical body. But he makes clear that no matter what happened with his body, no matter what happened with his strength, he's not backing down. He's not losing heart. In fact, look at chapter 7 of this same letter, chapter 7, verse 5. Look what Paul says in here. 
He says, for even when we came into Macedonia, our flesh or our body had no rest, but we were afflicted on every side, conflicts without, fears within. Know that he was afflicted externally and internally, both physically and spiritually. And Paul, during his ministry, he suffered a lot. Here in, in 2 Corinthians, look at chapter 11. Chapter 11, verse 24. He gave, he gave us a list, like many verses, of his sufferings, both internal and external. Look at 2 Corinthians 11, 24. Paul says, Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have spent in the deep. I have been on frequent journeys. And please notice the word danger here. It says verse 26. I have been on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, Danger from my countrymen, danger from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Those were Paul's sufferings, his credentials. I mean... I think in verses, in the first two verses, I'll quit. Okay, okay, this is enough. I'm, I'm out. But Paul, he wasn't like that. He persevered. But look, all the things we just read is external. That was just external. Look at verse 28. And he writes, apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure on me of concern from all the churches. And he, he says, who is weak without me weak? Who is led into sin without my intense concern? The idea here is that Paul was afflicted from everywhere. He literally had no rest, both in his body physically and in his soul. But here's the idea. Neither tribulations, nor sufferings, nor the decaying of his body, or any danger, you name it, nothing will cause Paul to lose heart. He was persevering in his faith. On the contrary, going back to 2 Corinthians 4, verse 16, on the contrary, he said, Though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. Where does this power to persevere comes from? It comes from the Holy Spirit. It is the power to persevere in faith that comes from the Holy Spirit. That is what the Puritan used to call the life of God in the soul of men. It is the daily regeneration that the Holy Spirit is working in Paul. And that is also true of every believer. Paul talks about it, just look real quick, chapter 3, verse 18, the same same letter. He says, But we all, with unveiled face, 
beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. That is exactly what Paul is describing in here. This renewing that is happening in the internal man day by day. Paul says that our outer man is decaying. The body is decaying. We all experience that. And of course, it is more obvious in, in some than in others. Right? Uh, I'm sure that probably all of you cannot do right now what you used to do 10 years ago or 15 years ago. You know, one day you wake up, you look in the mirror, you have your blonde or your brown hair, whatever. And then time, time passes and you look yourself in the mirror and it's gray. And then it turns like white. And then one day you wake up, you look yourself in the mirror and there's no hair at all. You're bald. So we all experience this decaying. The other man is decaying. Nevertheless, know the contrast. Paul says the inner man is being renewed day by day. And there is something quite valuable in this verse 16. Note that those two actions that Paul is talking about, decaying and renewing, those two actions are simultaneous. That means that both actions happen at the same time. The decaying is daily, the renewing is daily. And I like the way one commentator illustrates that truth. He says, in quote, as your outward life conforms ever more closely to the crucified Christ, your inward life conforms ever more closely to the glorified Christ. The idea here is that yes, our outer man is decaying and is conforming more and more to the crucified Christ to the point that one day we will face death. But it is true as well that our inner man is conforming every day to the glorified Christ to the point that one day we will be like Him. We will have a resurrected and glorified body. We will see Him and we will be just like He is. But here's the thing. If you are a Christian tonight, both things are truth of you. Yes, your outer man is decaying. And yes, praise God, your inner man is renewed. But if you're not a believer tonight... Only the first thing is truth about you. Your outer man is decaying, but your inner man is dead and sin and trespasses. And the only way the renewing of your soul can be truth, if is you come in faith and repentance to the Lord Jesus Christ. As we read in verse 15, the only way for you to have inner life, if is God give you life through His Spirit in your soul. If the Lord give you faith and you believe in Christ. Otherwise, your outer man is decaying and just that is a reality of you. But here in verse 16, this is happening in every believer right now. Have you hear me preaching? Have you wake up tomorrow? Have you go to work tomorrow? That's a reality. You will feel tired. You'll get sick, whatever. But that is our hope that our inner man is renewing day by day. But let's look at the promise of future glory. Because that is true right now. But what about the future? Look at verse 17. 
for momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. These, brothers and sisters, verse 17, are the lenses, the lenses, the glasses to see afflictions. More affliction equals more glory. That is in essence what verse 17 says. The afflictions of this life are insignificant in comparison with the future glory. Look at that. Paul says, momentary light affliction. And that is contrasted with eternal weight of glory. And there is a wonderful, wonderful contrast in this verse 17. It is almost poetic. Now remember listening, this is the first time from uh, Pastor Riccardi of our church. I modify a little bit, but just look at this, the contrast. Paul presents three contracts in verse 17. First, he presents a contrast of time. Contrast of time. He is contrasting momentary and eternal. Then, he also presents a contrast of significance. Contrast of significance. He is contrasting light and weight. And then... He also presents a contrast of value. Contrast of value. He is contrasting affliction and glory. So, momentary and eternal. Light and weight. Momentary, I mean, affliction and glory. And here's the idea. If you put the momentary light affliction on one side of the scale, and on the other side, you put the eternal weight of glory... Guess which one is going to be heavier? The eternal weight of glory. And that is the idea when you compare the afflictions, the momentary light affliction of this life, uh, the light of eternity, it is nothing. It is insignificant. It is nothing. And glory, what Paul says in here, is a very important word in the context of these chapters. In chapters 3 and 4, Paul uses that word 17 times. And we're gonna, we're not gonna read every time he uses that, but it's your homework. Read chapters 3 and 4 and just notice every time Paul mentions glory or glorious. And just to give you a quick view of the, the importance of glory in these two chapters, in 2 Corinthians 3, 7 to 11, Paul indicates that the new covenant is more glorious than the old. Then in 2 Corinthians 3.18, Paul defines sanctification of terms of beholding the glory of God. We read that verse. And in 2 Corinthians 4.4, Paul says that unbelievers are blinded to see God's glory. In 2 Corinthians 4.6, Paul tells us that in salvation, God enlightens the unbeliever, so that they can see the glory of God. And we read verse 15. In that verse, Paul writes that he endures all things for the glory of God. The point that Paul is making here is crystal clear. Glory is what encourages us. 
the glory of God shining forth in the faith of Christ. That's our motivation. Our affections, our will, our actions that should be focused not on our own glory. Not on making a name for ourselves. Not to make ourselves famous. But on the glory of the God. On the future glory that is to be manifested. In 1 Corinthians one thirty one, Paul says, If somebody wants to boast, boast in the Lord. And then in chapter 12 of 2 Corinthians, Paul said, If you want to boast in something, boast in your weakness. Because when you're weak, then you're strong. Because God's grace is sufficient. And in Romans 8.18, Paul writes a very idea, similar idea to this verse 17. He writes, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed in us. And this is the future glory which awaits every believer. So... The afflictions we might experience in this life are light and momentary. If you've been wondering, how how long do I need to keep fighting with this? If you've been wondering, uh, how, how long is this affliction going to last? Well, they only last this life. Paul says they're momentary, they're light, every single affliction. And... The, the promise is that afflictions are not coming with us into eternity. And that's guaranteed because when we read the end of Revelations, there is no sin, there is no tears, there is no pain, there is no sick, there is just glory and full communion with our triune God. So afflictions only last this life. And we should focus on the future glory because that focus motivates us to persevere in faith. Let's look at verse 18. In verse 18, Paul gives us the right perspective. Right perspective. Look at verse 18. He writes, While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Just a quick comment, while we look, and that word look comes from a word that is escopeo. And from that word, we have the English word telescope. And it's the idea of a laser focus. We look, we, we're fixed on that with our eyes. And in fact, in this verse 18, the word that dominates this verse 18 is the word look or sin. We just read that word like four times. Paul is emphatic in this verse 18. His focus is not on the things which are, which are, that are seen, but on the things which are not seen. And he says that because the things that are not seen are eternal. We just read it. We look not at the things which are seen, but at the things that are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. So five times he's talking about looking or seeing. 
And this sounds like a contrary, like a contradiction in terms, because Paul is telling us to look at the things which are not seen. And you might be wondering, what are the things which are seen? He's talking about those two things. Things that you can see and things that you cannot see. So what are the things that you can see? Well, according to the context, those things are afflictions. Is the, the, the deterioration of the decaying of the physical body. Paul is saying that those things are temporal. In fact, in chapter, in this same chapter, verse 8, Paul makes a list of that. Look at that. Second Corinthians 4, 8. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not despairing. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always caring about in the body the dying of Jesus. So that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. So the things that are seen is the affliction. Paul saw that everywhere he went when he was doing his ministry. But what are the things which are not seen? That is the future glory. It is the future glory that is about to be manifested. And just, as Paul said in verse 18 at the end, that glory is eternal. And this is the right perspective, the right perspective that encourages to persevere in faith. And Paul writes many, in many parts about it in Colossians, Colossians 3.2, Paul writes, set your mind on the things above. Not on the things that are on earth. Paul's invitation here is to look, to observe, to contemplate, to behold eternal things. The things that are not seen. And if you're wondering, well, okay, this verse is clear. I have to look at the things that are not seen. How can I do that? How can I see that which cannot be seen? Well, there is only one way to do that. And that is through faith. I mean, Hebrews 11.1, that is the very definition of faith. The author of Hebrews says, Faith is the conviction of things not seen. So, the only way to see the things which cannot be seen is through the eyes of faith. In fact, look at chapter 5, verse 7 of Second Corinthians. Paul writes, For we walk by faith, not by sight. That is the, the way every believer should be walking. By faith, not by sight. The way to see things that cannot be seen is through the eyes of faith. The only way to behold the future glory is through persevering faith. And the only way to persevere in our faith is believing and contemplating the promises of the future resurrection and the future glory that we just saw. And just to wrap up real quick, let's look to Hebrews 11. This is a great illustration. There's an excellent illustration here coming from Moses. Hebrews 11, 
Look at verse 27. Talking about how can we see things that are unseen. Here the author of Hebrews writes. Hebrews 11, 27. Look at this illustration. He says, By faith he left Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king. And this is glorious. For he endured or persevered as seeing him who is unseen or seeing him who is invisible. And that is the thing. How Moses was able to see the invisible one. How Moses was able to see who is unseen. Verse 27 at the very first phrase says, By faith. Again, it is only through the eyes of faith that we can contemplate the future resurrection and we can believe the future glory that is to be manifested to every believer. And just look how the author of Hebrews continues in chapter 12. After talking about the heroes of the faith and all the things they did by faith, he says in chapter 12 verse 1, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which is so easily entangle us. And let us run with endurance or perseverance the race that is set before us. How are we going to do that? Verse 2. Fixing our eyes on Jesus. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. The only way, brothers and sisters, to persevere in faith is fixing our eyes in our Lord. Is trusting and believing in the promises of the future resurrection and the future glory. The future resurrection, again, is the hope that we will be resurrected like Christ. And future glory is the truth that we will be glorified with Christ. We don't lose heart. We persevere in faith. We persevere in faith because every day we are being renewed. We persevere in faith because this momentary light affliction is producing in us an eternal weight of glory. We persevere in faith because our eyes are not looking to the temporal things but the eternal things in the eternal one. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the clarity of the scripture. Thank you for your spirit that gave us life to understand. And we pray that you make us not only listeners of your word, but also doers. We pray that you produce in us obedience and persevering faith. So that we continue this Christian life glorifying you, worshiping you. And we pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen.